What's up, Cherise? What's up? Not much. You're tired. I'm feeling pretty good. Oh, nice. No, I'm fine. Feeling all right. I took a nap. Oh. So that, that's That's the me. beauty of not working a nine to five. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Cherise Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, discounts on our store, and more. Let's get into it. Interesting anecdotal information. So I have been experimenting with Facebook Instagram ads for Macon. I am by no means an expert. I barely learned how to run this like using their whole ads manager thing, which honestly could be a whole lot better. It's not well done. It is not. It's really not well done. I always have to like triple check yeah, what I'm doing. Yeah, their ad manager sucks. So I ran an ad for pay. Actually, if you're listening to this and you use Instagram, there's like a super good chance that you got served one of these ads. I ran one before the shop was opened for Patreon, told Eugene, doesn't seem to be doing pretty well. Our average cost is like around $6 Hong Kong per link click. Pretty sure that's like It's probably 80 expensive. cents US maybe. Yeah. And then we started running like pre-shop opening ads as like a heads up and it was using like the dispatch bag as the image and it did so much better went down to a dollar 90 hong kong which is like what 20 something cents 24 five cents dollar 20 is like a dollar 90 dollar 90 hong kong dollar 90 is probably 25 cents yeah yeah and then i 24 25 cents yeah and then shop opened shop launched a couple days ago I changed the ad to go directly to the store, also changed the image, and it's, the last I checked was averaging around, also hovering around that $1.90 mark, basically. So, you know, that's a pretty big difference. I don't, my math's not good. I mean, What's the difference between $6 to like $1.90? That's like pretty big. Like 30% of the cost yeah. per link click. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that number is just like the cost will just go down because it's actually just been running like three days right now. And technically so. it's supposed to optimize. Yeah. Yeah. It, like the, it learns machine learning. Anyway, I was telling Eugene, obviously, this is just like proof of consumerism. Or people just gravitate towards physical things. Like I think or, that you just engage more or maybe it's just something new. Like, yeah, I was just going to say, maybe it's like curiosity. It's like, like novelty. Oh, we already knew Macon was doing this like Patreon thing, independent publication, support them. And like either you already support us or have decided not to or you're considering it. And like, therefore, you don't click through. But you're like, ooh, like products. That's something different. Yeah, exactly. So I shouldn't hate on people. But it is way easier to understand an idea or concept when it's in a tangible form. Yes. Yeah. It's easier to... You don't even need to read anything. You just look at it. Oh, it's a nice bag. Or I like the photos or whatever. Yeah, there is very little text on those ads. So thank you, folks, for clicking on them ads. Thank you for... 
thank you for bearing with us. Or maybe they really enjoy it. Yeah, maybe you know, they, maybe it's not bearing with us. Maybe like looking under the hood of how to try to make money to run an independent <laughs> publication. Oh man. Okay. Well, future marketing reports to come. Let's get into it. Sounds good. You want to go first? Sure. Yeah. So my subject this week, a couple folks in the Making Member Discord voted for it. It is a long article from The Atlantic titled, You Won't Remember the Pandemic the Way You Think You Will by Melissa Fay Green. And it is a long article. It covers some anecdotal material from people that she interviewed and it talks about memories and story arcs and that's just giving you an overview of this piece i was initially a little bit hesitant about talking about this because and but she addresses it everyone's experience of the pandemic is so different or has been so different yeah, and continues super different. to be really different so it's like really hard to talk about it basically nothing is definitive when you talk about the pandemic because like you and i we've said this before had I would say a relatively not painful pandemic experience. Yeah. Definitely compared to just acknowledging there are people in countries that are still really going through it yeah. right now. But I think beyond pandemic, there is some really interesting stuff that she says about memories and the creation of narratives that we do as individuals. So she starts by saying how there are incidents in like, society called flashbulb events, things like the assassination of JFK or 9-11, yeah. where everyone can really clearly remember, like, this was a Thursday afternoon, I was doing this, etc. Like, there's this snapshot that people have, whereas the pandemic, in comparison to that, is very, like, this hazy thing. And drawn out, and exactly. times become really murky. You know, I I had this exact exercise. We were like, how long has the pandemic been going on? And we were trying to like retrace because for us, it was a little bit earlier in Asia, right? Well, that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, actually, because she asked people like she did kind of an open call and then interview different people asking them, how did the pandemic begin for you? How would you describe the beginning? Or is there even a specific moment that you attribute to the start of pandemic? I just remember it was in early 2020. I remember I was in China for a business trip in 2019, like December. And I came back like really sick, probably the sickest I've ever been. But I never really correlated it with that, right? Like it just wasn't- I never heard this story. Well, I just thought it was like a regular thing. Like I just stayed at home and I stayed in bed and I was fine. Like in that regard, I just didn't feel well. Like I felt sick, but I'm not saying it was like COVID. That happened and then this thing happened. And I was like, oh, are they correlated? Probably not because I thought maybe it was too early. But then, you know, once all the all the reports around when did it really start started, that further complicates things because it's like, well, I had a very special and unique circumstance that was different than anyone else. Let's say theoretically, like, you know, I'm, I'm in that stage in December 2019. And then so soon you read reports. Oh, yeah, this could have been happening as early as September. So then that soon builds a new narrative in your mind. Yeah. Right. And not to mention there's so many other things that are going on in terms of where did it really emerge from all that other stuff. Right. I mean, that's really interesting because like you got sick and it's 
it is totally indicative of how memory works because at the time when it was happening, you didn't think much of it. But then so later sick. on, as you cop- kept getting new information, you r- reframed you being sick. Yeah. Under like all of these new data points. Yeah. And for for me, just to answer like my own question, it was so much later, which is also interesting, just like in this room. Like I for me, I would probably describe the start of my pandemic being the end of March 2020 because I was in London and Mm -hmm. at that moment in time, relatively unscathed. And it didn't hit me as a real thing until I got on a flight from Heathrow back to Hong Kong. And that was like the most dystopian, surreal movie-like experience I've ever had. The, the, that entire trip of going to the airport and being at the airport and on that plane and landing was like, I, I remember a lot of details yeah. from that trip, like even just more than any travel experience where I remember like how I walked through the terminals and like other people, and like what they were wearing and stuff. And even that, psychologically, like, you're thinking like, man, I'm going from a place of relative safety at that point into a place of danger. Yeah. And then obviously now it's a little bit different. It's like the tables have turned in a way where, cause I, I know a lot of people that left Hong Kong to escape COVID and then they might've even got stuck somewhere else. Yeah, Like unable to return or having to pay a lot of money to return because of a three-week quarantine where you have to pay for your own hotel or they have to reroute through a lot of different countries because Hong Kong wasn't allowing people to travel indirectly from, I guess even, you could almost go as far as say banned countries where they weren't accepting flights from like the UK and whatnot. Totally. I mean, I think one thing that's been stressful slash might still be stressful for people is this having to reconsider the decisions you made in the past so at the moment when i came back i had a lot of uncertainty as to whether this was a good decision in terms of like health risk and just in general like i don't know what's going to happen right is this the right move but then in hindsight it's like oh that was the right move at that moment in time but it's so hard to like not have something kind of firm in your mind yeah as to how am i painting the picture of like the last two years of my life yeah it is crazy because in some ways it's been man it's been 18 months yeah right and for me 18 months when i look back on it like oh it's it doesn't feel that long ago when it just started it doesn't which is a little bit weird because everyone has this warped sense of time relative to different things that happened like whether like someone's bucketing of how relationships work COVID probably have different senses of time. Yeah. I mean, I was just in a conversation on Monday with two other people and I mentioned to them how I was supposed to move from Hong Kong in April 2020. And one of them said, oh, three months ago. And then the other person was like, it's 2021. And he just he laughed because like in that moment, he he was still in 2020. Like that's where his mind yeah. was at. So another question that I think is interesting and that she also asked um, respondents was in the future, like imagine yourself like five years, 10 years down the line. What do you think is going to be one of your lasting memories of this period? Like, what would you say to someone? Like, let's say some kid asked you, hey, Eugene, what was it like when you lived through COVID-19? I mean, the stuff that actually 
comes to mind for me, especially because we were relatively unscathed in Hong Kong. In many ways, Hong Kong really just went through this thing where there was a heightened sense of security around how you're going to tackle it. And yes, there were some limitations on what you could do, like restaurants would close early, right? Or you just have to mask up. Like I went from never wearing a mask to always wearing a mask now, right? And that's something that, because I didn't grow up during, or I wasn't living in Hong Kong during SARS, I didn't have to really take note of that. But I remember in the very early stages, I was, when it was happening, I'd walk into an office that was primarily comprised of people that were like born and raised in Hong Kong. And at the time I was like, I didn't think twice about it. Right. But then as soon as it sort of like dawned on me, like actually it brought to light more so how people are going to manage big challenges going forward, which I thought were more interesting. Right. Like I think that that's the, that's part of it that has come to define what COVID is. Like how do you manage big challenges and crises really brought to my attention, especially because of so many things happening all around the world and how everyone else was choosing to manage or not manage COVID. First and foremost, creating global consensus to solve a problem is going to be really hard going forward. And there's going to be problems that we all have to face collectively as, as humans, right? Like climate crisis. If you can't get some sort of general agreement within your own sort of predefined borders, somehow you're supposed to go and agree with other people that probably already are coming from a different perspective because they have a different culture. Yeah, so, that, that, that hits exactly on what I might say to someone, you know, five, ten years from now, where my lasting impression of this time, I feel like at this moment is going to be, this was when I and a lot of people realized like the real ramifications of excessive globalization and not preparing for consequences, essentially. And I think I might also say that this was a period of time that an effect of the pandemic was this vast like reconsideration of what you want to spend your time working on and how you want to work. Yeah. Yeah. So at least at this point, like those are things that I feel like I would continue to remember. You know, that's actually really funny because I think the pandemic hit what has now been, you know, 18 months. Like I think maybe less than six months into it, obviously depending on your cycle, but it felt like COVID was a nice excuse for you to do several things. It was to not see people you didn't want to see. It was to stay home if you had the luxury of staying home. But it also kind of pushed a lot of people of various walks of life to just be like, hey, you know what? I don't want to spend my time. And how can I utilize the tools at my disposal to arrive at the life I want to live? Because I think a lot of things that were seemingly consequential to how the world worked became inconsequential. Right. And things just sort of fell apart. And then as things fall apart, you soon recognize, well, actually, what's really important relative to what we've been told is important. I completely agree. Yeah. So I want to tell you a little bit more about some aspects of Melissa Faye Green's article. She did all this research of interviewing respondents, and then she consulted with different memory experts or people who have researched memory to find out, are there generally accepted things about how we form memories and the way we treat them in our lives? So one person that she spoke to was Robin Favush a psychology professor at Emory University. 
And Favouche said that most of our memories are in the form of generalities. I might tell you about my memories of childhood. One of the most important things to me was having Shabbat dinner every Friday night with my family. And you might ask, tell me about one of those family dinners. I'd say, oh gosh, I don't think I can. And this is a demonstration of how, well, this is an explanation of what we've just been saying, where like when we talk about the pandemic, we talk about it in general, encompassing like 18 months rather than to say like, oh, on May 5th, this specific thing, series of things happened to me. Yeah. I mean, also because we didn't deal with any particular acute trauma, right? Yeah. Like it wasn't a parent or a grandparent who got really sick or someone lost their life. Yeah. Speaking on that subject. So another person um, the author spoke to is Richard McNally, psychology professor at Harvard, who says that trauma creates really painful, long lasting memories. And the point of it is actually functional because it's meant to help us avoid those traumas. So, for example, like when you're a kid and you touch a hot stove, you remember that it's like hot and therefore you avoid like fire. It's like a very simple example. But unfortunately, in the pandemic, it's like not so easy to avoid the things that cause your traumatic memory Mm -mm. because of the pandemic being this like collective problem that we've learned you cannot solve as an individual. And it also hasn't stopped. Yeah. So it's like one thing for you to be part of a natural disaster, which has a start and stop for the most part. There's recovery, there is rebuilding, but if it's still ongoing, like the things that cross my mind are people that work in service industries and they, if they haven't had the ability to kind of move on and they're still working there, like they have to deal with people's bullshit, like people coming in and not adhering to certain rules and regulations because they don't believe in it or it's beyond them. Like that's still ongoing as long as COVID is a thing. And obviously, yes, maybe we did talk about people kind of changing their opportunities and and what they're able to do. But at the same time, it's like, it's still still ongoing. It's not available to everyone. And also you might really love the job you're in, but you still have, you still have these traumatic memories in relation to your work, right? Like if you think about everyone who works in medicine and health and at hospitals, they've just had to keep going. I can't imagine what that's like. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't have that firsthand experience. You have been hearing stories of people that are literally on their deathbed asking to get vaccinated because they're not vaccinated, right? So those are things that are going to be ongoing for the most part. And I think, I mean, we're still, we're honestly still at a phase where we can't say like definitively, this is when everything subsides. So the memories that you have in relation to vaccines and unvaccinated people, that's still an everyday topic for like an indefinite amount of like ongoing. Yeah. One thing that I thought was really interesting beyond the pandemics, we can talk about this sort of from a creative perspective, I think it's possible, is that the author talks about a 2016 study done by data scientists at the University of Vermont and the University of Adelaide, where they analyzed 1,327 English works. And out of that found that there are six story arcs that all of these works can be categorized into. Yeah, I found this super interesting. And they essentially form three pairs. So each of these charts, this is really visual, so people should probably go look at this, but there there are three charts and they all have like the X axis goes beginning to end. 
and then y-axis is positive at the top and negative at the bottom, okay? And the first pair of stories is rags to riches or riches to rags. This mm -hmm. is the easiest to understand. So it's either like from a negative place to a positive place or positive place to a negative place. Okay. Second set of stories shows a change in trajectory and there's one inflection point. So it's like you, you're at neutral and then you rise and then you fall. And then the opposite of that, where mm -hmm. you're like at neutral and then you fall and then you rise again. Yep. And these are, there's like nicknames for those, which is Icarus or man in whole. So Icarus is the story where, do you know this story? Guy that flew to the sun. Yeah, exactly. So that's like rise and fall. And then man in whole is someone who's like hits a down point and then gets out of it. And then the last pair has two inflection points. So it's the most complicated where the story goes like fall, rise, fall or rise, fall, rise. So similar to the first, so sorry, similar to the second pair, but with like one more point in it. Yeah. And turns out, well, if you want a trivia question, guess which of these pairs people gravitate the most towards. I want to say the first one. As in positive, negative, or negative, positive. Yeah. Like the simple line one. It is the second one. Mm. People love the redemption arc. Yeah. In particular, the one where you, you go through a slump of some kind get out of it and also the opposite people love hearing the story of where people were on the rise and then well i mean that's yeah. a lot of gossip right that where makes it's sense like someone's life is going great and then they take a hard landing for some reason i was thinking the first one because it was the easiest to understand like it was the shortest easiest way to communicate well actually that was you're not wrong because those yeah. were the researchers assumptions hmm. as well yeah so i'm just gonna quote from Dan McAdams, a Northwestern psychology professor, who said, Every life story is filled with different sort of scenes. We found that people whose narratives include a lot of redemptive arcs tend to have higher psychological well-being. People whose life stories contain a higher density of contamination narratives tend to show higher levels of depression and lower levels of well-being. And he goes on to say, Someone who's had a horribly difficult life could have a harder time framing redemptive sequences. But we look at the interpretation. What kind of meaning does a person derive from difficult events? Some people tend to go through life interpreting things in a positive way, making redemption sequences where they can, even in difficult circumstances. I feel like this, I don't know if I'm making an assumption, but I feel like this subscribes a lot to like your life philosophy as to when you can't change the circumstances that you're in, it comes down to your ability to reframe it in a way that benefits you. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to reframe it and just see where you can make change. This desire to kind of change your trajectory is, is always relative, right? Like, I think that in, in many ways, you always hear about these rags to riches stories where some dude moved to a country with $20 in his pocket and ended up being like a, a multimillionaire, right? Obviously, that is less the case, but it's generally speaking kind of like this standard of deviation type approach where given where you are at any given point in time like it's more likely you'll you'll rise or fall within a band mm. versus you'll like actually shoot past either or of the bands yeah right so i think that's like the reality of i think the world we look at in terms of how people want to kind of like frame shit up and figure out where they where they sit within it because you know as, as i was kind of like thinking about this topic today i'm like it seems like a topic to bring to light, but it just, there, there's not really any closure to it, right? It's more about it exists to be like, 
let me try to make sense of the world you're in right now or what you're going through. But the reality is that like, there's not, there's not really any sort of conclusion. Like we're going to talk about this. We're going to be like, oh yeah, your, your, your situation was that this is my situation. And then people, someone else who might listen to this be like, yeah, I had a very terrible sort of COVID experience, but I'm trying to, I'm failing to understand what role this, this topic or these, these pieces do in terms of like helping move something forward. I think the conclusion is to encourage people to see if they can structure the stories they tell themselves differently Mm. about their lives and not in a comparative way, not, and also not in like a patronizing way, like not to say like, Oh, Eugene, like your life isn't so bad. It's not as bad as you think it is. Like, I don't think that's helpful. Like as a friend, I would never say that to someone, but I do think it's good practice to take a step back and think about what, what is the story I'm telling about my life over the last two years? Like, mm-hmm. am I subconsciously painting my story as riches to rags? Like, am I telling myself I'm so unlucky. I'm always in a slump. Like it's just downhill from here. Mm-hmm. Like things were going great for me. And then the pandemic hit and now it's just been shit downhill. Yeah. Right. And I think just recognizing that is the story I'm telling could encourage you to like, is there another way to see this? And I, I, I genuinely think it's possible. Like, yeah, we can't change the reality of your situation. Like if you lost a job, like the job is still lost. If you lost a loved one, like the loved one is still not on earth. Like mm-hmm. we can't do magic, but you can also choose, I think like the beginning and ends of your stories. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, let's say you're really focused on a six month period of your time where like at the start of that six months, things were looking amazing, like new job offer, you were moving. And at the end of the six months, like none of that happened. Mm -hmm. And if you're really fixated on that, then of course it's going to look like that diagonal down. But if you say, okay, actually the story is ongoing. Like what do the next six months look like? Right. So then you can suddenly, you see yourself not as like this line heading down, but as just a dip. Yeah. Right. And I think like also what you were saying in terms of like a band, like what I think is to me is like stories in popular media or in entertainment in general, like they're very intense. People deliberately, deliberately because they're entertaining and they need to fit within a new cycle, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it's very dramatic and real life is things happen on a much more minor scale. So. It's like saying, actually, even though this isn't like this dramatic rise, do I actually see this, the line going, you know, maybe it's like a slight dip or maybe it's a slight rise. Like, I think it's possible mm-hmm. to, I, I would, I would say like quite openly, I think that people can learn to practice thinking about their lives that way because it, it is beneficial. I'm quite definitely about that. Yeah. 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 Cause I, I mean, I've, I've said this on this podcast before, but I, there are moments in my life that I have considered to be like quite slumps. Right. Yeah. And one thing I learned was like, you can't stop ending what you tell yourself at like the lowest point. 
you have to keep thinking about, okay, what happened next? Like, how did I reach the point where I am now? Instead of like reliving the memory where you hit the lowest point. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. People are often consumed with the low points because they generally hit home the hardest, I'd say. I guess for me anyways. I don't I don't I think that in general like the negativity that we see is often the more the more polarizing and the more powerful emotion. I think lastly to wrap things up, the author also mentions we've mostly been talking about individual memories and the way individuals tell stories about themselves, but actually there's also collective memories. What do we as a community say about ourselves as communities? How do we as a whatever group, a group of friends, an office, the neighborhood you live in, paint the trajectory of where you're going. And I thought that's interesting from a group of people who work together. And I was genuinely thinking about Megan because last episode we talked about the shop. Mm -hmm. And actually we did kind of tell a like um, rise to fall to rise story in the last episode. Because we were talking about we were at this point launch, we kind of hit this downturn, there was, you know, lack of funding, and now we're here where we are with launching the shop. I just thought that was like kind of remarkable thinking back on it. Like, yeah. oh, that is we are telling these stories literally as we're <laughs> living it. Yeah. All right, over to you. Yeah, let's move on. My topic this week is breaking down implications of Mong Hong, the Chinese word for internet famous. So Sharice and I had a little debate because we're both Cantonese speakers, but the general crux of this conversation is about mainland China, which generally speaking speaks Mandarin. But I think for the purpose of this, I think as long as you understand the word itself, I think it's generally fine. Yeah, I thought I would have the same question because the transcript or the sorry, the text of this article has it in pinyin, which is the romanization of Mandarin words. But yeah, Eugene and I are both Cantonese speakers. So I was like, my pronunciation of Mandarin is going to be really bad. Yeah. But anyways. This is what it is in Mandarin for people. You want to try that? Which basically, <laughs> if you kind of break it down, it's Internet web. red. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just no. kidding. It, the second word is the same word as red. Internet yeah. celebrity. Yeah, basically it translates to that. But actually the whole article is like a breakdown of this word. So there's no basic definition. Yeah. So this was an interesting piece proposed by Vicky Gu, who's within the Patreon community. And this piece on Chao Yang which I thought it was an interesting format. I don't know if you read it, but it's like basically kind of I like, did. it's kind of like a long form group text chat. Yeah, I did read it. I thought it was a podcast. That was a transcript. And I was looking for the audio because I was like, oh, maybe I'll give a quick listen before we go record. Yeah. There is no audio version. It is just a text. I, I really enjoyed it. So thank you to Vicky. I have not heard of Chow Yang before you put this, I guess she put the article forward. So yeah, it this was one's really been nice. on ice for a few weeks, actually. Oh, I'm glad we're getting to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, as the word suggests, it's kind of like internet famous, which is a word that exists, obviously, in English, right? Uh, it's taken a little bit more of a convoluted 
definition, I think, in China. So Krish, one of the co-hosts of Chao Yang, says that the word has mutated, expanding and Venn diagramming with a particular hipster aesthetic, strands of urban design, and kinds of tech platform architecture. It can refer to people, places, cities, entire counties. As I read through it, I was like, yeah, there's kind of like a pejorative take on it. Because I think in the same way you would say something's like internet famous, like that doesn't always mean positive, right? There's a certain element of it that could confer like a negative connotation. But it's a light negativity. Like it can also just be. OK, I wouldn't say totally neutral, but it is a. Practical description. Yeah. Of certain types of, like you said, places, definitely food, people more neutral than like other Internet yeah. vernacular like fuckboy yeah. or. Yeah, 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 yeah. What else? Even I would say beast. that it can be an almost neutral adjective but does have somewhat negative connotations so depending on who's using wang hong so depending on who's using it wang hong can be an aspiration a warning as in you'll have to queue at that bar it's wang hong or a judgment this art show's vibe is a bit wang hong in almost all contexts though it suggests a certain shallowness a hollow facade and an example they use quite early in the piece is one by co-host tian yu who describes the Binhai New Era Library in Tianjin, which is this impressive looking library that has these sort of like spiraling bookshelves. And while it's visually impressive and a lot of people go there to take photos, a lot of the books they use are actually fake because they're just there to fill in sort of the backdrop, which is kind of funny. I mean, it, it kind of reinforces the notion that what's great for social media as a photo is often more important than authenticity or reality. I thought that was one of the most interesting aspects of this article was this discussion of how things and people and experiences, everything becomes secondary to their digital reputation and the digital mm -hmm. presence. So the food becomes secondary. Even the person of Eugene becomes secondary compared to the Wang Hong persona of yes. Eugene, just as an example. Yeah. yeah. There's this one subreddit I love called stupid food and it's essentially all all this yeah, rolled into exactly. one it's like it's like people making ridiculous food what's the most recent one i saw it was like it's like people that that make spaghetti and they'll dump like cold spaghetti on a on a kitchen table it's like a nacho table but a spaghetti table right or it's people like adding food coloring to a hot dog for the sake of making it colorful and they just go and cook it whatnot and obviously a lot of these people are creating these sort of like grotesque representations of food because of the ability for it to go for the ability for it to go viral, right? Yeah, this one of the co-hosts says the production and consumption of Wang Hong places seem to be very much about the imagery, whereas the experiences of these places are often secondary and are not necessarily the focus when people share about these places online. And you could swap the word places with almost anything. Yeah. Wang Hong food, books, what cafes. I don't know, fashion goes on. Yeah. Cause it it is interesting because the photo becomes the product, right? Mm. But well, the photo becomes a thing. Yeah. Actually, it becomes the main subject. But for the longest time, we've been told that people don't care about consumption of things, they care about the experience. But now you're kind of seeing this new sort of analysis of it where I am going there, not necessarily to experience it, but to acquire the product of it. Totally. Which is really fascinating because so fascinating. that's technically how you're supposed to 
quote unquote market to this next generation. No, like they're experience driven, right? Not the ex- not the actual experience of it, but the evidence of the experience. Exactly. That's it's just so interesting. It's kind of meta. Yeah. My mind is boggling. The part that I liked the most about this because they started to dig a little bit deeper and they started to they started to dissect uh, the concept and idea of Wang Hong and. And they started expanding into how it impacts other cultural pillars, which we talked about, like architecture, food, art, fashion. And it leads itself towards the exploration of Wang Hong urbanism and how it becomes a new type of force that basically has a very strong, heavy-handed approach towards design decisions, right? Like we can use a food one, like your decision to create uh, a 20 pound hamburger right in itself exists not because it tastes better as a 20 pound hamburger but because the photo will be better mm-hmm. right and the opportunity for you to create virality will be better and uh, one of the co-hosts had this really interesting quote jamie said wang hong now has less to do with experience than aesthetic proof which you mentioned before to the point where buildings or restaurants or infrastructures are now being built and marketed for the sake of wang hongness at the expense of prioritizing public or social functions or purposes. These are not spaces that facilitate interactions between their users, counter what we usually think of in terms of urban social dynamics, but rather as more like a monologue between the users and the space. Yeah, I mean, the hosts themselves, a lot of them were originally raised and lived in cities across China, Changsha, Guangzhou, places like that. Sorry, I don't know if those are the exact cities, but those are some that they talk about. And one of their references was to the Choi Hong estate in Hong Kong, which was maybe their only Hong Kong example, though I could also think of other Wang Hong Hong Kong examples. And it's like the Choi Hong estate is this really colorful building that people might have seen yeah. in like Instagram photos. And With it's a actually court in the front. a public housing yeah. estate that didn't aspire to be Wang Hong when they painted the building the yeah. way they did. Albeit Choi Hong is like rainbow. And, I mean, but yeah. that's, yeah, and that's been the name of that yeah, area. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like obvious to them to do it. But then Wang Hong Urbanism suggests that like new properties or renovations or actual like real estate and city decision makers will replicate Wang Hong in what they do. So mm-hmm. to take the Choi Hong estate as an example, they will consider how can we recreate this virality in this new thing that we're yeah. making? I mean, the very low touch version, and I say it's low touch because it's easier to expand upon is like street art, like murals done by artists, right? That was kind of the early application of where people would go and take photos. Like there's that one wall in LA that was really famous in the very sort of early stages. Like there's that pink wall, but there's other ones too, I think. Yeah. There's one in Hong Kong. Like every every city has one of these. Yeah. So this concept itself isn't really defined by what's happening within China so much as like they've actually taken it because of, and it could be this, it could be the fact that there's so much rapid real estate expansion that they have the opportunity to iterate a lot faster. Totally. Right. And it's, they're able to see it as it happens and it having effect on what they're doing at yeah. the moment rather than it may be other places where development is slower and therefore they wouldn't capitalize on something that's like of the moment yeah like in europe for the most part like you have architecture that's hundreds of years old that is considered yeah historical right like you're not going to 
raise that and then put something that's done for the sake of virality. Although art sculptures do represent that to an extent. There was a discussion. I can't find exactly who said it, but there was a discussion if it's possible that Wang Hong in urbanism is a somewhat good thing because it means that people are seeking out what is different in cities and places. And it indicates a desire that there still be like places of differentiation because, you know, I mean, Hong Kong, a lot of the urban architecture, all the a lot of the tall buildings look the same as each other. Yeah. yeah. And this is true in China as well. A lot of the office buildings look the same. And so Wang Hong is um, where you're looking for like this one spot that you could only get like the picture at that one spot from a slightly positive slant indicates that like people want uniqueness. Yeah. Yeah. And another part of that argument too is that you're creating some sort of financial opportunity because it's basically a tourist attraction, right? Well, I mean, this on this is definitely like a per example level, right? Because yeah. they also talk about how places that accidentally become Wang Hong can be disruptive to yeah. the people who live there. Choi Hong Estate again, yeah, yeah, a good yeah, example. Yeah. But you are right that if new enterprises are able to capitalize on it, then it could lead to ec- yeah, yeah. economic benefits to yeah. that place. There's another part in this that I found really interesting because it started to really look into the whole paradigm between influencers and followers within the realm of social media. And what they basically talked about was that in light of how influencers are creating almost these communal moments, like what I share with you now with a follower is technically viewed as some sort of community moment where I'm sharing this with you and we're all going to enjoy this together. And what it suggested was that influencers, by virtue of visiting these Wong Hong type environments, whether it's a restaurant, a city, et cetera, what they're doing is creating their own type of uh, moment that is almost like a, like a temple or a shrine of sorts. And if you as a follower are really down with this quote unquote influencer, your attendance there or your visitation there is actually you paying tribute to the place and the influencer that shared it. And that's actually kind of fascinating because I think it does represent to a degree the sort of relationship that we've seen develop between influencers and their followers. Yeah. Right? Because in in some ways, the consumption of an influencer's product, and in this case, it could be a lot of things. It could be uh, a makeup company they release. It could be a bag or whatnot, right? Yeah. That is in some ways paying tribute to that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found the the quote. It's from Yiling. They say, if fandoms are a form of worship, Wang Hong celebrities, deities reincarnated in contemporary form, aren't Wang Hong locations in some ways temples to pay homage to? The god of tech-driven capitalism, in this case, the Denping Meituan algorithm, has deemed this particular glitzy bookstore significant, meaningful, worthy of your attention. And so you must go and pay homage because chances are if you are a young Chinese person living in a city, you don't have shrines anymore to imbue meaning on. All you have is a Wang Hong restaurant. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. The one thing that I want to ask you is that in light of this. It's like filling a void of, I mean, I am a person who has my own like religious, spiritual aspect of Mm -hmm. my life. And I 
not to say that everyone has to have a religion, but I do think that there is a natural human desire to be a part of something bigger than themselves mm-hmm. and to like look for structure yeah. in that way. Yeah. And I think this is kind of stepping in and supplying that. One question I want to ask you is, have you gone to one of these types of places knowing it was, you know, internet famous? And what was your reaction after going there? I accidentally went to what I think you could accurately describe as a Wang Hong Cafe last weekend. In Hong Kong. In Hong Kong. Obviously, yeah. It's a new cafe. Okay. It's a new cafe. So maybe you can describe, you can describe it as Wang Hong, but only in an aspirational way in this adjective. As in, it is very clear that the people who, you know, opened this cafe took from every playbook they could, like Mm -hmm. the menu, the decor, et cetera. What does that mean? Describe it. This sounds like the airspace, like. It's like, um, like pastel pink wallpaper, that kind of like. So it wasn't actually. Velvety couches. It wasn't internet famous. So much as, as you mentioned, aspirational. Aspirational. It's not actually internet famous. It's aspirational, but it's working because (laughs) I went with a friend and neither of us are influencers. And I guess like the term we could use. I did not go with like an influencer friend. We genuinely went to just eat brunch. Okay. This is why I say accidentally. We didn't because we went early. Okay. But then as we're sitting there, every group that came in after us was pairs of female friends. And the entire cafe, I swear, is like looking at the same Instagram mood board for their fashion. Because me and my friend were like wearing black, like somber colors. (laughs) and these. I'm not, I'm genuinely, I'm not saying this in a pejorative way, but it was just so strange because they were all wearing like the same kind of like crop top, slightly frilly tops with these like flowy dresses in all in light colors with like florals. Anyway, they all look the same. Definitely not streetwear. And definitely not streetwear. All look the same. And the cameras at every table, including video cameras. There were people, taking actively vlogging while we were there and i was like very interesting it, it was it was so, like it was like observing a phenomenon while it was there so what i find most interesting is that this whole thing really comes down to the fact that i think a lot of people recognize that the shallowness is what gets to them right like it's not that the aesthetic itself is actually a byproduct of the design it's more that the aesthetic itself is all there really is to it the aesthetic is the product yeah which, and so actually maybe people leave really happy because like they get what they're looking for. Yeah. Like, oh, this is going to make great content. I do sometimes flip flop back and forth because sometimes when we put together campaigns for clients, I, you know me, I'm like, okay, this, this can look beautiful. I actually think making something look nice is the easiest part of it. It's whether or not it has any substance behind it. But a lot of times we've gone, like most recently we had a client say, oh yeah, the longer form stuff isn't really doing well. So like just cut it. And it's like, it actually makes our life easier, but it kind of leaves you a little bit more hollow inside. Um, The stuff that actually, for me, I think that is valid in terms of its title is probably like UNESCO World Heritage Sites because they have like in some ways an aesthetic and then they also have like a deep meaning behind it mm. yeah i mean i've been to stonehenge did you was it as impressive as you thought it was it's not very it's big not, right it's genuinely not that impressive visually yeah 
and you can't get very close to it. So it's actually not, you know, it does not buckle down on Wang Hongness at all. Mm. There is a very in-depth audio guide. Yeah. So I would say that is the opposite direction. Like, I wonder if I've never been to the pyramids of G- of Giza, but that'd be kind of like something cool. Yeah. I was fortunate to go to uh, Machu Picchu. And I think that was like, actually the one thing that crossed my mind is like, oh, this is like pretty legit. Like actually like looking down at it and like, this is pretty impressive. You wouldn't describe that as Wang Hong though. Um, would you? I would say it's pretty internet famous. Well, I guess maybe on a global scale, you could argue that because of a consolidation of so many international tourists. But I think that one thing that this did seem to characterize was a lot of it was regionally based. And what I mean by that is it's a, able to build a pretty strong name within just a local community. Yeah, it is very regional. And what's Wang Hong for Machu Picchu is not for Changsha or Hong Kong, etc. Yeah. And it's, it is an interesting adjective because to use it to apply to different places will mean something different. Like you're referring to a different set of things, yeah. I think. And one thing I thought was interesting, this is kind of going back to what you said about the potential of Wang Hong urbanism to lead to economic benefits was that they raised the question of how much are the tech giants actually the ones profiting the most? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to say that there aren't cases where local communities benefit, but amidst all of this, the big profiters, regardless of location, is the... The sites, right? I don't actually know all the names. Like they mention a bunch yeah. of different ones. I mean, you Chinese could just replace sites. it with Instagram. Like what yeah, is Instagram, Instagram? Facebook, TikTok. Yeah. Those, but in every other country as well. Yeah. I mean, what I think is the biggest takeaway for me from this whole piece is what is the mechanism that allows this to continually spin onwards and onwards, right? And I think that discussion around just fandom is one I don't really see changing. I think that actually in some ways fandom probably has negatively impacted us, right? Because I think fandom celebrity culture has in some ways removed that layer of critical thought and analysis. Because ultimately you're, you're relying on someone else to decide for you in a way. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. And I feel like what it comes from though is a lack of, of something else like what i i said this already kind of but i think the participation in a fandom is because there isn't something else of greater depth or interest that you could be participating in instead Mm -hmm. like it comes from a desire to be part of a collective group right and to like have like a layout of what it is that you pursue and show interest in and you know, define your personality by, and I guess, yeah, it is, it is a bit of a bummer that so many people decide to participate actively in fandoms of whatever to characterize themselves rather than, I mean, I don't want to be like this elitist, but I just feel like there could be other interests of greater substance than the fandom. But you know, that this, You said elitist and elitism, which is valid. I mean, I think for the most part, we 
people that listen to this probably do feel a tinge of that. But I think that maybe there's a difference between elitism and, and just demanding more as the outcome. So what, what do we gain if we actually force people to actually have a much more buttoned up expectation around something? Or we expect them to develop a concept that's more thorough? Or is it just not necessary? Like, I think that one thing I look at is perhaps, you know, going back to the example of the library, is the library set up a commentary on something or is it really just there to exist? Because I think that's the one thing that we recognize that art in itself, the, the visual attraction of it is hopefully something that makes you think about the intent or the message. But I think- I think the message is what's missing in a lot of these cases. It's just like, let's go and replicate. One thing they talked about a lot in this piece too was like looking at a sense of nostalgia and old school buildings or some sort of period in time and just rebuilding it for the modern era. I completely get this because this happens in Hong Kong for sure, where it's like a fetishization of an appearance of whenever the 50s, the 60s, et cetera, rather than actually engaging with the history Yes. Of that place and going into, well, why were buildings built this way or signage and yeah. et cetera? What's know? that game that's really um, popular? The one that has dog in the name and has like the Kowloon Walled City. It's sleeping like Sleeping Dogs. Yeah. Sleeping Dogs is like a pretty well known video game that is based around the Kowloon Walled City. And it's hilarious because I was in Kowloon City on the weekend oh. and I was like right outside the park and the park is literally like a bunch of smooth flat services that people ride their bike around like a little track. And so I was like, oh yeah, that's where the Kowloon Walted used to be. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like I've seen photos of it uh, and all this other stuff, but there it was like right there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, for those unfamiliar, it's actually really interesting. The Kowloon Walled City was this, uh, what's the right word to use? Like a, basically a, like a lawless city on its own where, where basically they had their own set of laws that govern the city itself yeah i don't know what the right word to describe it is you should go look up the wikipedia page for it yeah it's pretty interesting and some pretty interesting stuff i would there's also some pretty cool documentaries on youtube if you just google kowloon walled city yeah but that's something that's actually been applied into other places around the world i think japan started like an amusement park around the concept yeah yeah so weird yeah for me i felt that was kind of strange yeah but that's about it for me I think that there were some really like, I won't, I don't want to say mind blowing, but things that actually really crystallized the relationship. As I mentioned, this is my, probably my third time saying it, but the <laughs> crystallized the relationship that people have with the consumption of influencer led products. For me, I think reading this article raised some excellent questions that are ongoing. So not definitively settled about our engagement with the appearance of things on the internet and how that shapes our interaction with physical spaces and people in real life, I think definitely worth a read on your own too. Yeah, cool. Let's wrap things up then. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. 
I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>